This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast. My guest on the show today is Jeb Besser, CEO of Modular Medical Inc. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is M-O-D-D on NASDAQ. Modular Medical Inc. is a development stage medical device company that is working towards launching the next generation of insulin delivery technology. Using its patented technologies, the company seeks to eliminate the trade-off between complexity and efficacy, thereby making top quality insulin delivery both affordable and simple to learn. As Jeb discusses in the interview, despite many tech companies trying to find, and I quote here, next generation solutions, for an insulin pump, it's only been recently that there's been some momentum in the delivery technology itself versus a smartphone-related monitoring solution. That is why I invited Jeb on today to discuss the following, the history of insulin pump innovation, why patient standard of care pump is so complicated, modular medicals, delivery technology, and what makes it unique and different, and next steps for commercialization. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Jeb Besser. CEO of Modular Medical Inc. Jeb, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Oh, great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a boxing day. <laughs> Absolutely. I appreciate you taking the time here. So wanted to this was a story or a company that was introduced to me by Matt Williams. So Matt, thank you for this. And you know, we haven't featured too many companies on here that are kind of I guess pre-revenue, you know, kind of have have a couple catalytic events coming up, you know, where we we've kind of, you know, timing-wise it's kind of lining up for some things that you have going on for 2024. So, I thought this was a, a a perfect timing to have you on the show because of, you know, we had a conversation where you talked about some of the things coming up for the company, so I thought, all right, why not? So, to start us off, you know, as we do with every interview on here, can you give us that one line that best describes Modular Medical? Sure. We're developing a next generation insulin pump to try and address the massively underserved population of people who are who have diabetes but could benefit from being from adopting technology but haven't done so yet because of the nature of the devices that are available. Very good. All right, so let's take a look back at the modular medical history. When was the company founded and what was the original thesis for the founding? So the company was started in 2015 as Quasaurus Inc by our founder, Paul DePerna, who was the founder and CEO of Tandem Diabetes, ticker TNDM on the NASDAQ. And he was their first CEO, first employee, uh, founder, got their product through the FDA. And the T Tandem T-Slim is today, the guts of the Tandem T-Slim today is what he invented. And that, believe it or not, was the last major platform to get introduced into this market. And that was in 2011. So he left Tandem after the IPO and uh, went and did another totally unrelated business, Ivera Medical, which was sold to 3M for $150 million the day they got cleared, roughly. And uh, But he always felt when he did his post-market surveys with the T-Slim that he had made kind of a mistake. Actually, he, he would describe it as a terrible mistake because he had implemented, he had brought all this technology to bear but he had made the user experience even more complicated and even more involved. And when he surveyed users, they continued to express disappointment that there was nothing that was easy to use in this space. Um, so he spent a couple million dollars between 2015 and 2017 of his own money developing an easier to use, lower cost, safer way to pump insulin. And when we met him doing due diligence on another project, that's what he was doing. So we, so in 2017, Pasaurus um, merged with a public shell called Bear Lake Recreation. It was an old snow. It was a snowmobile touring company in Utah. That's probably not important anymore. And uh, and and uh, and we said, look, Paul, we're going to lead every round until we're ready to go up to the Nasdaq. And 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 when I say we, I mean Manchester Management because I'm the I'm one of the two PMs at Manchester Management, the, currently the largest shareholder of Mod, in addition to being the CEO. Um, so that's. 
just just so we're all clear that I'm very aligned with the shareholders. You know, I make a dollar doing this job. So, uh, you know, I I have no compensation outside of equity compensation. So this isn't this isn't a lifestyle business for me. <laughs> um, anyway, so but but I've, I've gotten off track here. So for the next four years, we Manchester led every round into the company and the company basically didn't trade. But we were current in all our filings. And then in February of 22, the company uplisted to the Nasdaq. And I became CEO two weeks later. Um, and so, and that, and so through 22, we worked on preparing to submit to the FDA. We encountered a technical problem that we need that we could only solve by implementing our commercial production line, which probably in the end was a good thing, because most potential partners and acquirers want to see, and frankly, most investors want to see that we can actually ramp this business up. So we built that commercial line over the course of 23, and we're preparing to submit to the FDA. Um, this is a good time to talk because we put out an 8K this morning with a new PowerPoint that says that we're guiding that we will submit in January. So that's not that far away. So, uh, so we think that's a major catalyst and something that everyone should be excited about and interested in. Very good. All right. So, and just for context, we're recording this on uh, Tuesday, December 26, 2023, just for, for reference. You know, so let's now talk product differentiation. As you said, this is the next, as you described in the opening, next generation insulin pump. How would you say modular medicals devices are in, in development are unique and different compared to the current standard of care? Gosh, I mean, that's like my whole presentation. So, uh, you know, the good the good news is we got, we got time, man. It's a long form you, interview. You don't, don't worry. Don't need good. a scientific degree to understand what we're trying to do here. What we're doing is complicated and hard to accomplish. But in but the effect is that this becomes product positioning 101. OK, and, and that's really important to understand. Like we won't be talking about receptors or mice models or anything or anything else that requires serious statistics to understand this um, is this is just i'm really sad good. i'm quite sad about that okay. i was totally right. ready to get into receptors and, and all right well, well that's not going to happen all right next so, time so so the easiest so the first thing to understand about the current pumps is first of all why do you even want to pump in the first place if you're not a person with diabetes you might not understand this so so you know, since insulin was introduced, people have used needles to dose to dose it. And the problem with that is that your body doesn't actually deliver insulin like that as a hormone. Your body, your pancreas produces a slow drip of insulin all day long and then ramps up production when you're about to have a meal. And the reality is that's not how needles work, right? Needles, you get a sudden burst up and then you get a big crash and then you get a sudden burst up and a big crash. And so we know from years and years of research that the blindness that comes from the retinopathy, the diabetic foot ulcers, the cardiovascular damage, all these things that happen as a result of your excursions with diabetes happen because you don't stay close to baseline. So a pump can do something that a needle cannot, which is to give you half of your insulin in a slow basal drip all day long at, at very, very small quantities. We're talking like every time it pulses, it's smaller than 200th of a drop. And make it easier for you to just push a button to bolus, which means it's been shown over and over again in studies, instead of excusing yourself, filling up a vial or taking the vial, filling up a syringe, shooting yourself in the bathroom, dealing with all the sharps and the, and the associated waste and so on, much easier to just push a button through your skin, through your clothing. And when you do that, guess what? People bolus more frequently and in smaller quantities, also keeping them closer to baseline. So pumps are best in class care. And before you say, well, but they must be much more expensive. No, they are expensive to obtain. But if the insurance company gets you to wear a pump, you they save $10,000 a year per patient, fully loaded, including a $5,000 placeholder for the cost of the pump. So you would think, oh, they're all over this. They're pushing these pumps so hard. They are not. They're afraid to push them hard because they're worried that they're going to buy you a $5,000 paperweight. That you will use it for two weeks and then you will realize, oh my God, this is so much work or this is too complex or my insurance is only covering half of this and this is unaffordable to me, right? We would say that the current pumps fail are provide beautiful care for devices that were designed 30, 25, and 20 years ago. They are beautifully designed pieces of medical equipment to solve a specific problem from yesteryear, which are you know, which do a great job if you're willing to put in the work. And the work, by the way, is 30 to 60 minutes a day managing a device that 
in each case has more than a thousand user configurable options. And if you configure a pump wrong and you dose yourself incorrectly, you can die. So it's, it's high consequence. And so, so our positioning is very simple. Current three pumps are like that $2,000 latte machine you might have on your kitchen counter. It's got all the dials, it's got all the levers, it's got all this fancy stuff that you can do. There's no question that it makes a great cup of coffee if you configure it just right for you. But most people have a Keurig because it's 90% of the benefit for 15% of the work or thereabouts. And that's exactly where this pro this our product fits into a space where there is no such problem. And so, so don't, but look, don't take my word for it. In 2006, 32% of type ones were on a pump. In 2021, 36% of type ones were on a pump. In 2006, 21% of type ones were making their ADA target. In 2021, 21% of type ones were making their ADA target. We've taken, we've taken the people who are the most motivated, best cared for, probably were getting the best care with needles because they were so motivated, so educated, and so organized and made their care even better. But we haven't moved the people in the middle. I mean, we've gotten, we've taken uh, type two people who require daily insulin up from zero to 8%. That still means nine out of 10 aren't wearing a pump. So we think there's a huge greenfield market of people who have said, okay, that might be better care, but it's not going to work for me for one of a number of reasons. So there we go. That's, that's where we fit. Got it. All right. So let's talk, because this was interesting when we previous talked. And for me, it was kind of, I, I, I just hadn't been aware of other companies that have been able to kind of not have to go through the clinic. You know, as you said in, in the invest presentation as well, it says that there are no human trials required for modular modular medicals devices prior to submission to the FDA. FDA. So, can you give us a little bit of background on that? What that means? Why no trials? Love to hear more. Yeah. So, so as, as as I said before, if an insulin pump if an insulin pump is incorrectly configured, it can kill the user pretty quickly. If but the worst case scenario is the following: if that three mLs of insulin that's in the cartridge for a Tandem or a Medtronic or the two mLs that's in an, an Omnipod, it malfunctions and the, the liquid, all the insulin goes into the body at the same time, you're dead in about two minutes. So the FDA will not allow a human trial on an experimental pump because they don't want blood on their hands. So, and, and by the way, all three of the current pumps were approved only with a, with a series of mechanical torture tests. The only human Part of this is a human factor study to make sure that people can understand the directions. And that's and we are following that same well-worn path. Our predicate device is the tandem T-Slim that Paul invented. Um, we have to show that we pump with equivalent accuracy, safety, and uh, and usability as the devices that are on the market right now. And they're all labeled the same too, by the way. Got it. So let's that, talk. Yeah, yeah, no, that answers it perfectly. So Let's talk then. So what regulation do you need in order? I mean, obviously, FDA approval, all that, like that gets you to commercial. But what was there any other certification? I'm not totally sure, like uh, something that you need to then get to this point. Or is it just uh, give, give me more? You probably you, probably... No, you build you build the device and you go through the torture tests and then you get cleared. And then you have you have a different problem than needing any kind of certification. And the problem is it's never been worn by a human being. Right. Okay. In the real world, right? So you have to do so. The reason, if you look at our timeline slide, if you if you go to our website, we have a presentation up there in the investor section. You can read it at your leisure. Uh, we have a timeline slide, and so you'll see FDA clearance, and then there's like a sixty to ninety day period after that, which we call the soft launch. And the soft launch is gee, no one's ever worn this before. We probably should have a few hundred human beings wear this in a real world environment, dosing themselves with insulin to make sure of things that, that aren't necessary for FDA approval, but are important for usability. Is the stickiness just right? Is the button just the right clickiness? Is the, you know, like, is there something that we screwed up in terms of the user guide that needs to be tweaked slightly? Is there a word that's in the wrong place or whatever? So, um, it, there was an earlier version of the product that had a little priming tool. And when we did our first human factor study, it turned out that that was the biggest source of confusion because people would open the thing up and before they even got to the quick start guide, they'd find this little triangle thing and be like, well, what is this? 
and, and they would try and do something with it. And the reality is it doesn't need to be this. It could be a ballpoint pen, whatever. And in any event, we got rid of the priming button and the priming tool because that was a major source of confusion. So it's that kind of learning that you can do with the human factors study, but you can also, but also you need to experience in the real world because people have an incredible ability to, uh, to be creative about messing with your product in ways that you never expected. Absolutely. A hundred percent. You need, yeah. you need that, that kind of validation. So, okay. So as you said at the beginning, expected submission to the FDA, January, 2024. And we're uh, a 510k predicate device. So it's going okay. to take, how long is it going to take? The average time for predicate device clearance at the FDA right now is 160 days. Okay. Now that's an average and averages are not to be relied upon with the FDA because the FDA is arbitrary and capricious. And, you know, like you could be delayed by a week because your reviewer spills hot coffee on themselves. You just don't know. Uh, so, and and 510K predicate is a very broad category. All right. Like that could be anything from a device like ours to an artificial heart to <laughs> if it if it's meant to be an artificial heart, just like one that's on the market right now. Not obviously not a novel one. That would be a PMA. Um to a drill bit used in a medical procedure where they change the composition of, of the metal. That's also a 510K predicate. So this is why the average is not to be tremendously relied upon. But a good, a good rule of thumb is about six months, assuming that we've assuming that we don't have any major retest activity. But but it's important to understand if you've gone through the drug approval process that this is really different. It's much more collaborative. The FDA within a, within 90 days owes you questions. Uh, like you submit and then they, their clock starts and within 90 days, they have to give you questions. At the end of those 90 days or before then, you get a set of questions and you and their clock stops. You have to answer all of the questions, get them back to them, and then their clock starts again. Then they have 30 days to get you a second set. Clock stops again. You respond to the second set. And after that, it's supposed to be iterative. It's supposed, the, the law is least commercial burden to get the product approved as quickly as possible. So after that second set of questions, and often after the first, you know if there's a showstopper. You know if there's some major test that you're gonna have to redo. And look, no one gets through unscathed in this process. It would be foolish to assume that we will not have to redo some test. The question is, what test would we have to redo because not all tests are created equal? Like I, I say, there are 24 tests that the FDA makes us do. Um, one of the, you know, one of the ones that doesn't take very much time is you splash it with water and see if it shorts out. That's electrical safety. <laughs> at the at the extreme other end is put it in an oven for forty five days for accelerated aging. Drop it on its side from six feet up twenty times. Press the button on top thirty thousand times or ninety thousand times, and then test it to see if it still pumps accurately within five percent. Those are not the same. And this is why I've always resisted the temptation to say, oh, well, look, investors, we're 50% of the way there in terms of our test. We've done 12 out of 24. That's meaningless. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> but but the good news is that we've done now, now that we've we've basically done all these tests twice. Okay. Because because we, you know, we were very close to submission before, and then we encountered this technical problem, which we've now fixed. Um and so, uh, and, and I think we're pretty confident we fixed it. That was what our release on Halloween was about, that the third-party testing related to insulin stability was, we felt, appropriate for submission. And that's a, that's a black and white, you need to not alter the molecule within 5%, you know, molecule needs to be intact versus the control within 5%. I'm so sick of talking about the insulin stability test, and I'm happy I don't have to do it anymore because we passed, as far as I'm concerned. It will be up to the FDA to finally decide if we pass, but, you know, it's meant it's we're not meant to hurt the insulin, which is a bigger problem than you would think, because insulin is incredibly fragile. Um, the whole way it works in your body is it sticks to your red blood cells and forces sugar into them. So it sticks to everything. So, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Is there a little bit more you want to add to that? I'm done with that. I'm done. Okay. With that. All right. So, I mean, so as best of all possible worlds once submitted to the FDA six months, or is that just like our, you know, a middle of the road, like, all right, if all, if everything is a hundred percent, or maybe it's just one test or, you know, maybe a couple of like, it, I don't know. I mean, look, some companies like, get through in four months. Oh, interesting. Okay. Maybe not with this device, mm -hmm. this kind of device. We just don't know. The end is so small with insulin pumps mm -hmm. that you just don't know. I see. Okay. 
Remember, the last major platform was 2011. Between 2011 and 2023, there was not a major new insulin pump clearance. There were there were changes in the interface for the big three, but there and there was a type two pump, which was a mechanical pump, which I don't want to get into right now, which was a complete flop that called the Vigo, which was cleared. But other than that, there was almost nothing. Okay, and in the last nine months, they've cleared three devices. Interesting, but. but those three devices, not none of those three devices pump in what I would call a novel fashion. You know, one of them was actually designed in 2007. Uh, another one uses the off patent mini med pumping technology from 1996. And the third one is, uh, is a very similar pumping style to the 1996 mini med. So, okay. A lot, I think this is a crucial point now, because I think this is what a lot of or potential or people listening in are going to be like, okay, that's interesting because they hear nothing between 2011, 2023, but and then just in the last. Yeah, no, year. no, it's not like it's not like it was the department of no. It was <laughs> now, but that that being said, there okay. were three well-funded startups that tried to get cleared in that time period who did not get cleared. Interesting. But okay. each one of them, and, and but we've learned a lot from them. I hired each of their regulatory people to ask them about what went wrong. Okay, so it's it's an interesting point because remember we've already talked about what's the FDA's biggest concern? It's safety. So each one of these companies approached this process with the idea that the reason that these that all these patients hadn't adopted technology was they wanted a beautiful iPhone style interface on their phone. And only later did they say, hmm, I guess we're going to have to pump insulin. How are we going to do that? Let's figure that out. And so they would hire someone to work on it. And pumping insulin is an insidious problem. Okay. You can spend an awful lot of money if you don't know where the where the sinkholes are. <laughs> And only at the end realize you're never going to hit the accuracy standard or the safety standard. So each one of them hit on a solution that involved pressurizing the insulin. And they did that for a couple reasons. One is, remember, you're pumping it smaller than a 200th of a drop. You are you you cannot ever fail open. You can't be consistently high or low. You have to pump within, you know, call it an average of 5 7 8% accuracy every time you pulse. Um, you can't agitate the mixture too much because the main preserve of an insulin is zinc-based. And you have to do all that in a cost and a form factor that someone can actually wear on their body. And so when they encountered that problem, they ended up pressurizing the reservoir. We do not pressurize the reservoir. We use negative pressure. If our pump fails, it actually pulls insulin back out of the cannula, out of the cam, and back into the reservoir. They pressurized the reservoir and the FDA said, how can you assure me that this will never fail open? It's pressurized. If it fails, it's going to come out. And none of them successfully answered that question. I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but that's that's basically what happened. It didn't matter, doesn't matter how much money you spend if you have a solution the FDA is totally uncomfortable with because of that factor, they're not going to be comfortable with it. So, 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 you know, I think I think we've learned a lot from the way they approach things because and and remember you know we're happy to to marry with someone else's fancy iphone interface but our users when we pull them say our potential users say i don't want a phone i don't want any of that i just want to push a button i want to push a button to prime this thing every three days to get it going on my body and then i want to push a button when i'm having a meal that's it i don't want a second device and and you know it's probably it's probably worth returning to usability at this point um, because you know one of the first pushbacks I usually get on this now I mean I, and I think I think we sort of covered the FDA I mean the FDA the FDA is the FDA and anyone that says they have certainty is lying to you but this is a very well worn regulatory path we are our predicate nobody knows the application for our predicate device better than the guy who wrote it and got it through the FDA and that's our founder. Who has 70 patents in microfluidics and the reason that the other guys haven't updated their pumping method is the dna for doing that doesn't really exist at those companies anymore i mean if you look at it you know al man who founded minimed is not alive anymore um you know paul works for us and some of his engineers from tandem work for us no, and, then, and, and the reason I, I wanted to hit on this was to show that it the real differentiation the yeah. bar, even from the device is that the method of pumping insulin, it sounds like that's really the main moat. And you guys have well, we have we have eight families of patents around that's the what I'm the way we move okay. insulin. 
Okay. Yeah. And, but you have to understand you can't patent pumping insulin anymore. That ship sailed a long time ago. You okay. can only patent ways in which you've made it safer, easier, better. So we think we're safer. We think we're easier to use. And I'll go and address easier to use in a minute, because that's another really big part of our story. But the other thing, since we're talking about the design of the device is it's cheaper. It's cheaper without without running any additional risk. Because the fact is, you know, Paul was picking out the parts list for this in 2016, 2017, not 1994. And the world has changed a lot, right? So we told the engineers, you don't get to use this in, the, in you don't get to use it in our device unless it comes from cell phones and drones. So all the key, some of the key electronics are repurposed from cell phones and drones. So a lot of people say, well, Jeb, in your presentation, you claim that you have a 50% COGS advantage at scale versus the insulin Omnipod. And part of that is because we're not throwing the whole pumping mechanism away every three days, like the Omnipod. But the other reason is that we benefit from a supply chain that they don't benefit from. They, you know, they, they do a billion dollars in revenue, but it's billion dollars in revenue of a bespoke medical device. Basically, they're pumping with a Rolex and we're pumping with a Casio. And we benefit from the scale of the largest, most efficient electronic supply chain the world has ever seen, cell phones and drones. And a lot of those that a lot of that componentry never existed when they were designing their products. Got it. So, 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 my, so my next question is like, let's say, okay, again, best of all possible worlds, comes back, FDA approved did soft launch, you know, now let's say you're ready for commercialization. Is the company's plan to do is to commercialize on its own or to work with a partner? Good question. Um, so, and it's kind of goes to what are we- From playing? what you can tell us, of course. Well, no, we're, what I, wait, this goes <laughs> to what are we playing for here, okay? And and the fact is, well, there we don't have that many valuation comparisons here. But what, I, what I've said publicly, and I'll say again, because, because I want to be very open about this, is that, look, we are, we are happy to do whatever is the best risk-adjusted value maximization for the shareholders. And if that's a sale the day we got, get cleared, or if that's commercializing this thing, we are agnostic. It just depends on where the best risk-reward is for the shareholders. So after we get that second set of FDA questions, we're now going to have a lot of certainty as to whether or not we're going to be cleared in the near term. And at that point, we're going to retain a banker with two mandates. Mandate one is what would a strategic pay for this after we get cleared? And mandate two is um, what's our capital cost after clearance to commercialize this and bring in a stud commercial CEO who is not me to ramp it up and uh, who doesn't want to take FDA or, uh, or capital raising risk. So, so that's... Um, so that's what we're going. That's what we're going to pursue as we get closer to clearance. And and the strategics that we've talked to have said, look, I don't even want to talk to you in any kind of great detail unless you prove two things to me: one, that you're clearable by the FDA, and two, that you can scale this. Because I'm not going to buy this thing and have it be doing five million in revs three years from now. That's how I lose my job in biz dev. So, uh, so we built this line for six million dollars that can do seventy five million in revs on a shift and a half at Philips Medicize down in Mexico. And if I add 15 to $20 million of automation, I can do a quarter of a billion dollars a year at current at our projected reimbursement levels. So I think we're scalable. If we prove we're clearable, then I think we have an, we have an attractive offering for a potential acquirer. Um, and as, as I already told you, Paul sold his last company right after it got cleared. So we're not a team of people who think this is our only good idea and we're going to hold on to it with all 10 bony fingers. Um, and you know the type. So we're not that. We're happy. We're we're happy to go and do other things if the right thing to do is to put this in the hands of an organization that already has a sales force and already has a way and already, you know, is comfortable commercializing this. And and in fact, you know, I went to the Nurse Diabetes Educator Trade Show in August in Houston. Don't go. Um, I mean, you can go to Houston, but just don't go to that trade show in August. It's uh, it's pretty hot and uncomfortable. Um, in any event. For all your Houston viewers, um, but sorry, Houston. At the, at the trade at the trade show, we had, and you know, I'm speaking as someone who lives in San Juan, Puerto Rico, so I know what it's like to be hot and humid all the time. Um, so we went to this trade show, and we had a, it was the first time we ever had a booth, and we were right next to Medtronic Tandem and Insulate, 
and each of them sent a rep over to see our product. And then they brought the whole booth over and we asked every last one of them, do you think there's a market for our product? Do you think it's competitive with yours? Every last one of them said, not competitive with us. There is a big market for this. And then most of the reps afterwards said, gosh, I wish I had this in my bag. Because they know how many doctors refuse to prescribe the current products because they're so hard to use. But I'm getting ahead of myself here because, because in order to understand why it's easier for us to commercialize, you have to understand how the current products are designed and what the history is of being able to launch an easier to use product. Yeah, because right? it makes no sense that there hasn't been some kind of easier to use product out there for how long now? I mean, I, you know. Well, well, you have to. Okay, so, so remember the history. So Medtronic with the Minimed, this product right here. This is this is pretty much what. Uh, and for those who are listening, and those who are just listening to the audio version, uh, Jeb is showing us. Now we're getting visuals. So if you want to yeah. see the, vi go to the video version on our YouTube channel to go and check it out. And Jeb's going to do his best to describe. If if this looks like visual. a Microsoft Zoom to you, a combination <laughs> of a Microsoft Zoom and an old pager, it is. That's a lot. That's very much what it's like. And it's got 48 inches of surgical of tubing coming off of it that goes into your abdomen. So this sits on your belt, in your pocket, or on your thigh for the rest of your life every day. Um, a lot of people don't like that. A lot of people don't like this form factor. They find this hard to use. And uh, it also takes AA batteries. So you have to carry around AA batteries. And this has 1,300 user configurable features that you have to get right. That's a lot of work, and this is a lot to carry around. Like the, it's you can't see it, or and, and you can't feel it, but it's got real heft to it. Okay, so this this is option number one. This is still forty percent of the market, and these guys were a hundred up until like two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. They were a hundred percent of the market, basically. So they dominated the market with the mini with mini med. And they're the only ones who also make a continuous glucose monitor, which is the other device you wear all the time to get better results with your diabetes. So for a long time, they didn't have any reason to change, okay? This is the device that Paul designed, the Tandem T-Slim. It's got a color touchscreen. It's glass, not Gorilla Glass. So this plate breaks all the time. It also will have 48 inches of tubing coming off it. This also sits on your belt or in your pocket or on your thigh. And this also has like 1,200 user configurable options. So... Um, you know, so, and, and by the way, there's also a fair amount of social awkwardness with the, Hey, and now I'm going to pull this thing out off my belt and now I'm going to work with it. What is that? <laughs> like, just imagine you're a high school kid doing that. It's really socially uncomfortable. So that's option two. And these guys came on the market and with a, and for years they struggled against Medtronic because this balance sheet and, uh, you know, they were better, but not that much better, frankly, in terms of features. Okay. And until Medtronic had a major recall in 2017 and their market cap went from $40 million to $3 billion in about a year. This is the product that's taking all the market share right now. This is the insulin Omnipod. It's still in the plastic case, but this contains a pumping mechanism and two mLs of insulin. You throw the entire thing away every three days, this pod every three days. And, but it's unfair of me to just show you this because this doesn't work without this, a lockdown Samsung smartphone. So you, and if you don't, if this isn't charged, if this doesn't work, if you've left this at home, this doesn't work. So people have charging anxiety. People don't like this. And, um, oh, and, and this, and the tandem, you charge it at night while it's on your body. If you've ever worn a medical device at night that you charge on your body, you could say, uh, I'm, if I wrap my foot up in that and I actually accidentally pull the plug out, does that mean I'm not going to have an insulin pump tomorrow? Like you can see why people wouldn't want to deal with all this. So these guys are taking a ton of market share right now. The they Omnipod. Are, the Omnipod. They are so. cleaning the clocks of Medtronic and Tandem right now. And it's because of somewhat the design. But it's also because they changed the reimbursement landscape by going on the prescription benefit management plan. So they're, they're, they bill like a prescription drug. You buy this like you're filling a monthly script and you get 10 of these. Okay. And then they bundle this in. And they, they increase the cost of this to help subsidize this. 
So they don't break even on a user for we think increase the cost of the Omnipod in order to subsidize. That's right. The That's cost right. There's more the charge same. built into this Sorry, for the audio for the this. audio listenership. But, That's all. but the but the insurance companies love that okay. because in there and in fact they love it so much they're willing to pay a thousand dollars more a year for this than those other two because they don't have the upfront four thousand dollar paperweight risk. If you stop using it, they don't pay for it. Okay. So these guys are taking share. So why would they change? They're killing it. Like they're trading at eight to 10 times revenue, depending on the day, because they are taking a ton of share. They're not growing the market that much, but they are taking a ton of share. This is the Omnipod, just being clear. This is the, this is the insulin Omnipod. Yeah. So, so what are we going to do about it? Well, let, let's back up for one second. There's an adjacent space here, right? The continuous glucose monitor dominated by Dexcom and the Abbott Freestyle Libre. You've probably seen the Freestyle Libre advertised on TV. You might've seen it advertised in a CVS and in-store display. The Abbott Freestyle Libre is a great comparable for us when I say that there's a market out there for an easier to use, less complex device. Because when the Libre was introduced, Dexcom had been on the market for six years and Medtronic had had a CGM going back a ways and Roche had a CGM and Dexcom wiped the floor with them. And so by 2016, Dexcom was the dominant CGM. The only people who still used Medtronic CGMs were on a Medtronic pump and appreciated how closely integrated the two were. And Abbott introduced the Freestyle Libre, which was a flash glucose monitor, meaning it had a sensor on your arm and it only gave you a number when you waved the wand over it. And it didn't require a finger stick to calibrate in the morning, but it was also not as accurate. It was accurate within 14% with every data point rather than every eight like Dexcom. And so when it came out, all the, doc all the key doctors in the space ripped it and said, why does anyone want this terrible version of Dexcom? It doesn't have a real-time feed. It does, it's not as accurate. It doesn't have a patient portal so your family can see your numbers at all times. It doesn't have all the alarms as soon as you go out of range. Why does anyone want this? And yet, five years after it was introduced, Free Abbott Freestyle Libre had as many users and was doing as much revenue as Dexcom. But Dexcom kept growing because if you surveyed a Dexcom user back then, they sound like the current pump users. I work really hard and I get great results with my with my diabetes versus versus Dexcom where or versus Abbott, where people say, I like this product because it makes my life easier. I just wave the I wave the wand. I know my number. I don't have to prick myself. It's just it's it's good. And all the other stuff. I don't want any of that. I don't want my family yelling at me because I had chocolate cake with lunch. I don't want the alarms going off and having my coworkers judge me for being a person with diabetes. So we think that we are like that. And so, so this is our product right here. And, and once again, if you're, if you're audio only, uh, there's a two minute video on our website in the investor section where you can see a woman putting it on. So you can see how easy it is to put on it. It's a two part pump. The bottom piece is a three day disposable. It comes with the batteries, so you don't have to change any batteries. And then it comes with this little pigtail. And then this snaps together with that, with about the complexity of McDonald's Happy Meal. And this reusable lasts 90 days. We give it to you for free. And it has a button on it. And everything you need to do to operate this pump, you can do with the button. You fill up the insulin in the cartridge, because all ins current insulin pumps are self-fill. You buy the insulin separately. And then you click these together, and you put this on your body. That, the lack of a second device Many, many patients said, I don't want to have to have that. I want to be able to look on my cell phone if I have it with me and say, is it working? Did I just dose myself? So we have an app for that. We have Bluetooth. We have NFC. But they don't want to have to have it. They don't want to charge it. They don't. And they also want three mLs of insulin. Now, a lot of people love the Omnipod, but this only holds two mLs of insulin. 25% of all type 1s and 65% of all type 2s can't get through three days on two mLs. And if you can't get through three days you need to be out of pocket for that third day. That's that's like, okay, I'm going to spend $43 extra a day to wear a pump. Where do I not sign up? And and I mean, that's just unaffordable for, for a lot of people. So that's a major issue. And then there's one other major issue, which is that the Omnipod, while it's lovely in its design, it's not removable. When you fire that auto injector on your arm or on your abdomen and you and it sticks that needle in and leaves the soft cannula, if you take it off in the next three days, it is garbage. And so is all the insulin inside. You're locked out of the device. If you run into a door frame five minutes after you put it on, that's like a $100 mistake. 
If you if you, if you're a day in and you decide, you know what, I want to take this off for social reasons. Well, you got to decide whether or not that's going to be worth it to you. Um, there's just there's a people already feel tethered as a per to their disease as a person with diabetes. They don't want to continue to feel tethered to a device that they're wearing, which will make them feel better and lead to better results 10 or 15 years down the road. So ours is removable. You can un and you can unclick this. You can unclick this from the adhesive pad, which has little brackets in it. And, or you could even use an optional Velcro strap because we have this, because the injection site is not underneath the device. Um, one more word on the injection site being underneath the device. So the Omnipod, it's very slick how it has no tube because it's underneath the device. The problem with that is the most likely area that a device like this would jam is underneath the device at the point of injection. So with us, you just unclick this, throw away a 15 cent needle, put another one in, click this back on. So we think we have some major practical ease of use advantages and, and we're small too. Uh, we're about the same size as an Omnipod. I, I don't want to, I don't want to mislead you here, but look at, look at this relative to this. That's the, the, the mod versus the, uh, the, the yeah. Yeah. Okay. all right. So, so now let's go back to commercialization. So the way these products are commercialized right now is that, um, each of the big three runs a big direct sales force. And there are, only, there are 4,000 endocrinologists in the United States. Of those endos, 1,500 have ever written a pump script and 1,000 endos write 80% of the pump scripts. And, uh, and so you go to your endo and you say, hey, I want to go on a pump. And the endo makes you keep a diary for 60 days of all your diabetic events. And they're not doing that because you're a good or a bad candidate clinically. They're doing that as a pure proxy for compliance. At the end of that 60 days, they say, hey, Congratulations, you're eligible for a pump. Here are the business cards for Insula, Tandem, and Medtronic. Call the rep and they'll come to your house. And they roll a quarter of a million dollar rep to your house to do a feature and benefit sale at your kitchen table on why you should pick their pump. What other product is sold this way today? And, and the problem is the nurse diabetes educators know that there are these patients who are they're in, they're in their office every month who know exactly what the experience is like with these other pumps and say, yeah, I want a pump, but that's not going to work for me. I'm not spending that kind of time. I'm not doing that. And look, diabetes is a disease of everyone. You have to bring the product to the patient and their level of technical sophistication and motivation. And so with our product, we can send you home with you know, a link to a YouTube video, a reusable, and a, and a dummy cartridge and say, hey, you, you have a flip phone. You don't want to deal with 1,300 usable features, you know, configurable features. Why don't you try this? And if they reject it, well, all we've lost is the sample. But if they get it, we've solved a problem for the nurse who's been dealing with them asking for a new pump salute, you know, something else in pumps for the last 12 years and having and just being able to say, oh, work harder, be smarter, try, be more technically sophisticated. And if you've ever tried to teach someone how to use a phone or a computer, you know, that doesn't work very well. And no nurse wants to put up with that. So, so we... We think, and we're going to, because of our price advantage, we're going to offer first month free, copay buy downs, point of prescription couponing, stuff that's done everywhere else in medicine, but it's never been done here. We're going to have the nurse diabetes educator detail this for us as an alternative for people who have rejected the other three pumps, which is remember two out of three type ones and nine out of 10 type twos. Okay. So, so we got the, so firstly, thank that's you the market. That's the market. And obviously we want to be on the prescription drug benefit like yep. insulin, but I, I, I didn't answer your question. What are we playing for here? Because that's really what we all care about here. What are we playing for here? So Bring there's never been there's never been a cleared pump company that didn't have a $300 million market cap after clearance. They didn't always keep it. Like Tandem went public at 480, forged half a billion dollars and got down to 40 before they went to 3 billion. Um, Insulate, when they went public in 2008 or 2009, had a $330 million cap on 2 million in revs and negative gross margins, five years from figuring out how to get on the prescription drug benefit. Um, so one wasn't the fastest launch imaginable, and they still had a very nice market cap. Uh, obviously, Medtronic bought Minimed for $2.4 billion back in 2001. Um, so there's a lot of older history here in terms of public, but as, as we've already discussed, nothing up until six months ago, nothing new or nine months ago, nothing new had been cleared. Um, there was a company called Beta Bionics, which has a slightly updated version of this, which got cleared in May. 
who just raised $100 million at a 200 pre to commercialize this into the teeth of the market. But it looks a lot like this, and you need a CGM in order to have any advantage with their product. Their product is a slightly easier to use algorithm. So it's basically for an existing pump user who wants a simpler experience and is willing to accept a little bit less accuracy. So a step in our direction, but in a form factor that I don't know that a lot of people want who aren't an existing pump user who's already used to putting something like this on. There are two other transactions that are very recent. Um, last December, Tandem bought a company called AMF Siggy out of Switzerland for $70 million upfront and $140 million in earnouts and milestones. AMF, on the conference call announcing the acquisition, they said that AMF Siggy was planning to submit to the FDA for clearance in early 2027. So they are four years behind us, and they were willing to pay $70 million plus $140. Interesting. Even more interesting, in May, there's a company called EOFlow out of Korea, um, which, uh, which has a version of this. In fact... It's such a close version of this that Insulet sued them for trade secret theft, patent infringement, and anything else, and uh, <laughs> and trade dress theft uh, in in August. Um, so Medtronic liked this site, liked a knockoff of this enough that they were willing to that they bid seven hundred and forty million dollars to try and acquire EOFlow in Korea in a in an all stock in a cash tender. Um, the deal broke about two weeks ago because. Insulate got them taken off the market, got uh, EOFlow taken off the market in Europe, and then they sued them in the US. And I think, you know, it's pretty, it seems pretty clear that Medtronic misjudged what the IP situation was and cited multiple other breaches. So Medtronic walked away from the deal, but they've admitted they have a $740 million need for a patch pump that doesn't infringe Insulate's IP. Are we worth $740 million? Have we had a lot of discussions with Medtronic? No. I don't, I don't know. We have not. And I don't know what we're worth. That's going to be up to the market to decide. But given our current valuation of under 40 million, I think I'll split the difference. So that's, that's what that that's the history, which tells us unlike most 510k predicate device clearances are the starting line, not the finish line, right? Like you get a new surgical staple cleared. So what? Mm -hmm. This space has proven to be different over and over again. Got it. Does that I, answer the question? Yes, that answer. I, I think we've now, I think everybody listening in has definitely gotten the full picture of everything that, you know, how you got to where you're at today, the actual device itself, the market, what you're playing for, the odds, everything. So yep. now let's taking all that information, I always like to play devil's advocate on here. So for those that, you know, might be thinking, all right, Jeb, all this sounds great. We wish you the best of luck, you know, follow all this stuff. But if I, let's say, were to become a share, what are my downside risks? Where does this all go wrong? You know, in your opinion, what, what, what does that look like? Well, well, the first risk, obviously, is, is financial, right? Do we have enough money to get to clearance? And right now, I don't. I have enough money to submit and get through, through some portion of March. But I need to raise like 4 to $5 million in order to, uh, in order to get all the way through clearance, assuming that it takes, takes through sometime in late Q3. And how am I going to do that? Well, I have I have five million warrants at a buck twenty-two, which a few of which have already been exercised, surprisingly enough. And uh, and you know I think if the stock continues to appreciate, we'll get more warrant exercises from that. I have an, a six and a half million dollar ATM with Lyrink, which you know maybe maybe we'll bring some cash in off of that if the stock has good performance over the next few months as we submit and make progress. Um, and then I have a, you know, I have eight and a half million dollars of availability on my shelf. So I could do a five or six million dollar registered direct overnight. I, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do because we're going to be opportunistic and flexible about it in terms of, you know, obviously as the largest shareholder, I'm very sensitive to dilution. Um, what I will tell you is, while I'm not going to tell you that I'm going to lead the deal or my, even that I will necessarily participate, you know, Manchester has been with this thing since 2017. We're probably not going to let this thing die over three or four million dollars right now. Um, so, so that's risk number one is financial risk. Number two is something crazy happens with the FDA. And, and I can't tell you that there isn't, that we can eliminate all FDA risks. I can just tell you that the third party lab tests are the ones that take the longest to repeat. And as long as the FDA just isn't overall uncomfortable with your device. And I think the FDA knows that there's a need for something like this. And that's demonstrated by the fact they just cleared beta bionics with a less accurate algorithm that was easier to use. So, and that's very recent, right? That's May. 
So um, the longest lead time tests are, are biocompatibility, where you have to dissolve your dissolve your uh, cartridge in a variety of different solvents and then test them to make sure that nothing really bad comes out of them. And then just for just for kicks and, and because it's of FDA guidance, you have to inject them into 28 unfortunate rabbits and make sure they're still alive after a month. So that takes a long time, but that test went very well for us. Um, insulin stability takes a long time, but that, that test also went well for us. So the remaining tests, the other tests are mainly internal or human factors. Just, they just don't take as much time to repeat. So if they had some issue with human factors and they said, well, I, someone seemed to be struggling with this, with this part of the directions. Can you change the way that you instruct people how to use the button? What do you do? You hire, you change the guide, you print another, another, <laughs> another 50 of them and you recruit another 20 people and you have them try it the next weekend. So I can't tell you that there won't be some major delay, but we've done everything in our power to test, test, test in order to make sure that that can't happen. Very good. All right. Final thoughts. I think we're there. You've answered all my questions. I mean, usually I end with, you know, you know, your vision for the company three to five years, but I think at this point, this is a, this is kind of like a, a six to 12 month catalyst catalyst coming up, all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, final thoughts on, you know, you, what, what would you like potential shareholders or anybody listening in to better okay. understand or learn or and, and, Quick 30, so, 30 seconds to a so, minute. So aside from us being the Keurig in the space, which is the most important thing to understand, and aside from the fact that, you know, we're not trying to take existing pump customers and get them to dumb down their solution. We are trying to get people who are on multiple daily injections to upgrade to an easy to use solution, which provides them with much better care. Okay, I, let's put that aside. Okay, that's that's obvious. The other thing I'll say is, you know, usually I get, you know, a lot of investors are very tech savvy and forward thinking and say, aren't all these devices eventually going to converge? Isn't this, you know, what's your future five or 10 years from now? Why would someone want to buy you for five to 10 years from now? And the thing I would say about that is, regardless, of, there's been all this innovation in terms of, well, how do I change the interface? How do I make, how do I make this work with this device or that device. Well, I don't know whether or not it's Apple Health or Google Health or Livongo or Dexcom or whatever that's going to be managing all of your devices on your phone in five to 10 years. What I do know is that company that comes up with a product that pumps safely, delivers insulin, because you're still going to need the insulin, safely, easily, in the best, lowest cost form factor, is going to have a place in this market. And that's where we sit. That's our innovation. We are on the hardware side. We are not trying to innovate. We, are ha we will happily partner with anyone on the software and the interface side and the CGM side. But this is, I mean, at scale, this should be less than $2 to make. That's where we sit. And if you listen to Dexcom's conference calls and they, they get asked all the time, how come you aren't in the pump business? And they say, well, we think pumping is a commodity. Now, I think that's a little dismissive, but at the same time, in a commodity business, who wins? Lowest cost. Lowest cost is easiest use. And that's where we live. Very good. All right, Jeb, with that, where can our audience go and find more information to follow along the modular medical story? Uh, well, if you go to modular-medical.com and go to the investor tab, you can see our investor presentation, which covers a lot of the ground that I've covered today and maybe a little bit more that we didn't touch on. Um, and it also has a nice two-minute demonstration video where a model puts on, she doesn't pump insulin because that would be against the law, um, but there's a model who goes and puts on the device. You can see how easy it is to put on and where it sits on the body. Very good. Well, Jeb, thank you so much for joining me. Really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. Happy New Year. And I look forward to our next update. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast.